Welcome to Gospel and Life. Throughout the Bible, we see accounts of people who have had direct, extraordinary encounters with God. In today's sermon, Tim Keller is teaching through one of those extraordinary encounters, what happened and what it means for us today. After you listen, please take a few seconds to rate and review our podcast. Your review can help others to discover our podcast and experience the hope of the gospel. Now, here's today's teaching from Dr. Keller. The series we're using uh, passages in the this evening service, uh, in the evenings here this fall, we're looking at places where people have, I guess you could call close encounters with God. We're looking at a series uh, we've we've started. We've mainly been working in the Old Testament, and we're not done. We're gonna. We have a number of other places to go, both in the Old and New Testament. But we have a number of places. They're all extraordinary passages. They kind of give you. I always. They always kind of give me goosebumps. Get the hair on the back of my neck sticking up because they uh, they talk about. Uh, wow, it, they're filled with. They they fill you with awe because they're talking about coming right into the presence of God, having direct encounters with God. And the one that Paul gives us right here is one of the most curious of all, and also a very famous one, but very, very curious. Uh, You'll see the way in which he talks, he's falling all over himself. He's an eloquent man, but he doesn't really know how to go about this one. Uh, This is 2 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, 1 to 10. I must go on boasting. Although there's nothing to be gained, I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. And whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know. But God knows. Was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I won't boast about myself, except about my weakness. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool, because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain. So no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. To keep me from being conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest upon me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong." This is God's Word. Now, because we're going to be going to the Lord's Supper tonight, I'm, I won't go as long as I would like to go in some ways on this. But one of the good things about a, a worship service that climaxes with the words Lord's Supper is that there's a sense in which I, uh, instead of going all three points to my sermon, I, I just do two, and God does the last one to you directly. You take what's, uh, what, what is in the text, and then you, you have time to process it and to and to reflect and to ask God to bring it home instead of Tim bringing it home. And he can do a much better job. He knows you better than I do. Let's just lay out, therefore, just the basics, and then you'll have plenty to chew about, chew on. This is actually about discouragement. Uh, Paul says, I, uh, I have a thorn in the flesh, 
a messenger of Satan to torment me. Torment is kind of a bad word. I mean, a bad translation. The old King James Bible, the old authorized version, used a better word to buffet me. Now, we never use the word buffet except when we have a, a buffet dinner. I guess. I don't know. But uh, it, must be a, it must be a different route, you know. But anyway, we don't use the word buffet around. But you think about it. To buffet means uh, a, a messenger of Satan. Two, it literally means to take the courage out of me, to, to deflate me. This courage, this literally is saying something has come into my life to discourage me, cast me down. And Paul's letting us all into the center of his life as to how he deals with that. Uh, and uh, I was reading one, uh, one commentator on this who said, discouragement is a very important index of where you are in terms of maturity. He said, if you are always discouraged or never discouraged, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> he says, if you're never discouraged, you just don't care. He's, you don't care. You don't care about people. You don't care about God's cause. You don't care about the world. You don't care if you're not discouraged. He says, if you're a mature person, if you're a caring person, you will be continually dealing with discouragement, messengers from Satan. On the other hand, if you're continually discouraged and always cast down, you don't know how to deal. You don't know how to deal with it. You don't know the wisdom. You're not wise. Therefore, uh, if you're always discouraged or never discouraged, it's a sign of immaturity. If you want to understand discouragement, take a look at Paul. Now, Paul tells us, in this case, I'm just going to go right through it, because verse 1 tells us something about the context, why Paul is talking about this. And verse 2 to 6 tells us about the heaven experience, and verse 7 to 10 tells us about the thorn experience. Paul talks us about the heaven experience and then the thorn experience. Now, before we look at it, let me give you, uh, let me look at verse 1 just to show you why this is even coming up. See, verse 1, he says, I must go on boasting, although there's nothing to be gained, I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. Now, I've got to just take a minute or two here to set this up so you understand the context, why Paul is saying this. This is a letter. This is a letter to the church at Corinth. And if you read the whole letter and if you read what comes up before it, this is what you would see. There were some false teachers, people that had come to Corinth and were twisting the gospel. And Paul, out of real concern for his people, was trying to say, uh, don't follow them. But they claim to be apostles. Uh, there's a, it's uh, one of the, if you, if you study the Bible in the original language in Greek, one of the great jokes is this place in uh, chapter 11 where Paul calls these uh, people, he calls them the super apostles. Now, because they were claiming to be apostles. They were claiming to have divine authority, and they were claiming to be better than Paul. They, 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 they had more apostolic authority than Paul, that you should listen to us, they said. Now, Paul, in Greek, he doesn't actually say super apostles. He calls them hooper, which is, you know, for super. He calls them hoopermen. They're the hoopermen. So whenever you, in seminary, we used to talk about Paul and the hoopermen, because that's literally what he says. He says, I am not inferior to these hoopermen. Uh, and these super apostles were claiming divine authority, and they said, we have this and we have that, and this is the reason you ought to listen to us. And that puts Paul into a horrible position. Paul says, you're forcing me out of love for you to show you why you need to listen to me, and therefore you're forcing me to boast. I hate it. It's stupid. And see, verse 1 is to be understood, although there's nothing to be gained by boasting. Now, the better translation would be, I'm going on boasting. 
Not because, in general, boasting is a stupid thing to do. In general, boasting is a, is a bad enterprise. It's a useless, fruitless enterprise. There's nothing to be gained by it, but you're forcing me. So let me tell you about visions and revelations from the Lord. Now, you see, these super apostles had been saying, we have visions and revelations. God comes and speaks to us. Paul decides to say, well, since they're talking about visions, revelations, if I'm going to prove to you that I'm an apostle, that you have to listen to me, I have to talk about it too. I think it's stupid. I hate to do it. You're forcing me to do it, but I'm going to do it. But when he goes in to explain, to show that he has had visions and revelations from God, he is not in a direct competition. He is not saying, I want to tell you about a revelation to show you that I have had a bigger vision and a bigger revelation than these guys. He's really not saying, they have one revelation a week? Oh, I have two. You know, he's not saying, my revelations are bigger, my revelations are better. Oh, no. He's saying, let me show you the validity of my apostleship by showing you that my revelations are different. They're different. The experience of God that these guys are talking about is a different experience than what I've got. It's, it's not in accord with the gospel, he's saying. So he says, you're forcing me to tell about whether or not I've had visions or revelations? Let me tell you about them. And this is what he says. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether it was in the body or not, out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And I know this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. I will boast about him. I won't boast about me. But I could boast about him, see? I wouldn't be a fool because it would be the truth, but I won't. What is this? Now, Paul is clearly talking about himself, obviously talking about it. He says, I'll tell you about a man who was taken up to heaven. Now, I could say that I was taken up to heaven. It really happened, but I'm not going to say that. I'm going to talk about him. What is this? Paul says, I hate talking about this. Now, what he's showing us is something very, very important. I've been doing a little bit of reflection on this, and it's pretty intriguing. In, um, first of all, let me show you. He, he says here that pe he's teaching us that people who have incredibly high and lofty experiences of God, who have actually come right into his presence, who have had magnificent and overwhelming encounters with the living God, are absolutely, I use an old, let me use an old word, loath to talk about it. One of, the, one of the marks of these kinds of experiences is that you do not talk about them. Uh, I was re one of, you know, I was mentioning this morning to the, in the question and answer time that I've got a number of mentors, uh, but they're all dead. I like dead mentors. They're my favorite kind. They, they can't check up on you, can't give you homework. Uh, and uh, I'm always quoting these people. And by a mentor, I mean there's, there's certain writers, ministers, thinkers that I've just, just devoted myself to learning everything about them, reading everything about them, knowing everything about them, because I feel like I learned so much from them. It helps that they're dead in some ways. Anyway, uh, uh, C.S. Lewis is one, Jonathan Edwards is one. Another one is a guy named David Martin Lloyd-Jones, who died fairly recently, 1980s, I think. And he, was a, he was a great preacher, and he was a Welshman, and he preached in a, in a very uh, large church in the center of London. And recently his biography came out, and I read it. And one of the things that's so interesting is in 1949, 
uh, in the summer of 1949, when, when he got to the summer, when Lloyd-Jones got to the summer, he was so burnt out, he was so tired, he was so discouraged, he was so uh, depressed that he essentially took the entire summer off from any preaching. He just went, he, and he went back to Wales, his, his homeland, and he, and he just tried to get himself back together. And he spent, uh, he, he went off even away from the family. He couldn't read much, and usually he was a tremendous reader. And he went away from the family just to be a part in places, and he would, he'd get up and he'd read the scripture, and he was trying to pray, and he was trying to, uh, uh, also he was trying to read certain Christian literature, and, and he was getting no comfort. One morning he woke up, 6 a.m., and he was still in a kind of agony of soul, he said. He was just feeling far from God, and he started to get dressed. He hadn't prayed yet. He started to get dressed, and laying on the bed was a, one of the Christian books he had been reading. And as he was getting dressed, he looked at the book. His eye just glanced at it, and he caught the word. He saw a word on the page, the word glory. And he says, all of a sudden, now let me just read what it says. It says, instantly, like a blaze of light, he felt the glory of God surround him. The nearness of God and the reality of heaven and his title to both became overwhelming truths. In, an, in, in a state of ecstasy and joy, he fell to the ground and wept and remained in this basic condition for several days. Uh, the struggle came back as the summer went on, and yet later on the same thing happened for several days. He never wrote of the experience. Even though here's a man who's written dozens of books, he never even talked about the experience, and it really didn't even come out until his biographer, after he was dead, dug it up out of having known him personally and known the family and so on. Uh, the biographer says that after this happened, Lloyd-Jones himself made a kind of hobby of studying the journals and the records and the letters, and he found out that there was a number of people, many actually, many great Christian leaders who had had very similar experiences, and they all said the same thing. Now, one that, for example, I... I've read here before, but it's, it's, it's particularly um, uh, interesting in, in light of 2 Corinthians 12. Dwight Moody, who was a, a minister, in, he lived in Chicago, but he often came to New York. And in the, in the mid-19th century, he wrote this. He said, I began to cry out as never before for a greater blessing from God. The hunger increased. I really felt that I did not want to live any longer. I kept on crying out to God that he would fill me with his spirit. Well, one day in the city of New York, what a day. I can't describe it. I very seldom refer to it. It is too sacred an experience to name. Paul had an experience of which he never spoke for 14 years. This is all I will say about it. God revealed himself to me, and I had such an experience of his love that I had to ask him to stay his hand. Lloyd-Jones uh, dug out uh, the Puritans. The Puritans had much to say about this, and one very famous Puritan man named William Guthrie wrote a book called The Christian's Great Interest, and in it he says this. Listen. He says, There is a glorious divine manifestation of God unto the soul. It is a thing much better felt than spoken of. It is not an audible voice, but it's a ray of glory that fills the soul with God as life, light, love, and liberty. It corresponds to the voice that said to Daniel, O man greatly beloved, and that said to Jesus, This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Now, do you notice something that they all have in common? It's an experience of love, it's an experience of newness, and they don't want to talk about it. Inexpressible. I don't want to say anything about it. 
you can hardly drive it out of me. It's a thing better felt than spoken of. And here's what we learn. First of all, number one, if you hear, and I do, when you hear people talking about, very openly about God having revealed himself to me, God having spoken to me, God having appeared to me, God having said this and that and this and that, at the very best, they must be talking about an experience of God of a vastly lower order than what Paul and, or even what Lloyd-Jones or Dwight Moody or William Guthrie are talking about. Because a holy shyness comes upon you when this happens. Anybody that talks openly about this sort of thing, God just came down and he filled my soul with this and he told me this. When they talk like that, at the best, they're, they're talking about something much lower than this. Because anyone who's experienced this, it, it takes wild horses to drag it out of them. But, on the other hand, it fills you with a holy boldness. You have a holy shyness about yourself, but it fills you with a holy boldness about Christ. What's interesting is, you, well, it, at first glance, you might say, oh, I believe that too. I believe that religion is a very private thing. I don't believe you should talk about religion. This is Paul here. Paul is not a shy person about religion. Paul would get up in, on every street corner and he was quite happy to buttonhole everybody he could possibly do and say, I want to tell you about Jesus. I want to persuade you. You must not push Paul into that kind of 20th century mindset. Religion is a private thing. Religion is not a private thing. This is. In fact, this experience turns you, it gives you a holy boldness about Christ, but gives you an absolute holy shyness about talking about yourself and your experiences. Why? There have never been stronger calls for justice than those we have heard in recent years. What does the Bible have to say about it? And how does God's Word help bring about justice? In Tim Keller's book, Generous Justice, you'll discover that the Bible gives us a rich and complex understanding of what justice is and what it means to live it out. The book provides a biblical framework for justice, one that calls every Christian to a life of generous justice, fueled by grace. Generous Justice is our thank you for your gift to help Gospel and Life share the hope of the gospel with people all over the world. So request your copy today at gospelandlife.com give. That's gospelandlife.com give. Now, here's Tim Keller with the remainder of today's teaching. Well, here's a couple of reasons. First of all, Paul actually gives us a hint in verse 6. It's really interesting. He says, The reason I refrain is because I want no one to think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. And there it is. When a person starts to talk about experiences of God, how God has revealed himself to me, how God has done this and that, you automatically are claiming authority for yourself on the basis of your experience. If you've ever done that or if you've ever been in a situation where that happens, when a person says, God told me that you two should get married... What happens there? What happens? Well, what that person has just done is they've, they've, li- they've lifted themselves about six feet above contradiction. How can you have a conversation about that? Well, gee, I don't know if God's right. <laughs> you can't do that. When you start talking about your experiences, you see, you're, you're saying, I have authority because of my experiences. And Paul says, no. The authority that comes 
should come because of what I do and what I say. In other words, he says, if I've had experiences of God, it should show in my character. I should be a person of transparency, a person of integrity, a person of love, a person of, of holiness, a person of godliness. You should be listening to me because you look at my life and you say, that man must have met God. Because of the cogency of what I say, because of the truth of what I say, because of, the, because of who I am. That's where the authority should come from. Not because of what I claim to have experienced. I mean, I could be deluded. People get deluded all the time, sincerely deluded by these things. No. He says, I'm not going to talk about these things the way the, the super apostles are talking about them. That's not the way the gospel works. That's lording it over people. And now he won't do that. He says that's one of the reasons why he's reticent. But I'll tell you, I think the, the <laughs> I'll tell you this. I, I hope you, I hope nobody here takes offense at this. And actually, I hope God doesn't take offense at this. I was thinking about this. But listen, there is nothing worse than to hear a man who's gotten intimate with a woman tell everybody about it. There's nothing worse than bragging about it the next day and, and describing the level of intimacy. I mean, if you've ever heard anything like that, if you've ever heard anybody do that, you really know that actually no true intimacy really happened. When two people, whether friends or lovers, let the barriers down, become vulnerable to each other, reach a new level of intimacy, a new level of understanding, they understand each other, a new level of love, it is absolutely instinctive to protect that and not to talk about that. It just You just don't do it. You don't do it. And so Paul, you see, it's so interesting. Paul says, 14 years ago, I had a revelation. I've never told anybody about it before, and I hate to tell it now, and I'm not even, in a sense, I'm going to do everything I can to show you how much I hate talent, talking about it. And you know what's funny? When he gets down to it, this must have been unbelievable, because you remember, you know what this is? This is not. This is not his, his conversion. I mean, Paul had all sorts of experiences. Jesus Christ appeared to him on the Damascus Road and struck him blind. All through the book of Acts, he has all sorts of dreams and visions and, and revelations. All. And so this is, whatever this is probably was the number one. This was the biggest. And I mean, that would have to be pretty big. I mean, you know, here's, you know whatever Paul considers the big one, considering every, if you read the book of Acts uh, and you see what he had, this must have been pretty incredible. And, you know, he gets his way. He doesn't tell us the doggone thing. I read this. He hardly tells us anything. He gets his way. All the hemming and hawing, you know, verses here, verses, you know, three verses of introduction and four verses of after, uh, you know, reflection and about three words went to the third heaven. You know what the third heaven is? That was just an old traditional way of saying the third, first heaven was, is the atmosphere. The second heaven is the stars and the moon and the sun. And the third heaven is the presence of God. That's all. And that's all he says. I was there. He said, I don't even know if, I, if it was a vision or whether I was taken up out in the body. I have no idea. It was that incredible. Doesn't tell us a thing about it. Doesn't tell us a thing about it. But there's a holy boldness. There's a holy shyness. And the reason he's caught up, the reason he has this kind of experience, and even though I'm not saying that every, everybody anybody else can have an experience like this. I really think that apostles did have access that we don't have because of their job. Writing the Scripture, tough job. You know, I, I hope they had a few pretty incredible revelations. I hope they were way beyond me. 
But he doesn't say I had it because I was an apostle. He doesn't say I had it because I, I have a, a, you know, a, an ability with mystical experiences that I've got psychic ability or something like that. What does he say? Why, why did he have one? Because he was who? Because he was what? 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 What's it say? He was just a man in Christ. You see, to be in Christ, to simply position in Christ, to be clothed with Christ, through faith, God sees us as Christ. When we unite with Christ by faith, then God sees us. He sees Christ's record. He sees Christ. And that's the reason why we've got access. We've got, in a certain sense, as much access as Paul did. That's pretty remarkable. But... The other thing that he tells us about is the thorn experience. He says, we, we have a heaven experience, we have a thorn experience. And then he says, but to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassing great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, remember what we said before, to buffet me. And when that happened, um, this is, he's laying down a principle it's pretty frightening in some ways, but also extremely important, and you've got to see it. And this is what the principle is. In the Christian experience, this is why he's saying that I don't know about these super apostles. They don't seem to have the Christian experience. In the Christian experience, strength and weakness always go together. They are never apart. Lloyd-Jones has an experience of weakness, which led to experience of strength. And Paul here says, I had an experience of strength, which led to an experience of weakness. I was so lifted up that I would have become conceited unless God put something in my life to show me how weak I am and to make me feel my weakness. Strength and weakness are never apart in the Christian life. Uh, just like your left and your right foot. You know, when you walk, your right foot is ahead of your left foot, but it can't get too far ahead. <laughs> I mean, it just can't. You fall down. Next thing you know, you're dragging your left foot up to reach your right foot and to go beyond, and then that's walking. That's also Christian growth. Always. Experiences of strength lead to experiences of weakness, and experiences of weakness lead to experiences of strength. You don't go from weakness to strength. Don't you see? What Paul is saying is you go from weakness to strength, weakness to strength, weakness to strength, into higher and higher realms of power. You see, my power is made perfect in weakness. The strength leads to weakness, the weakness leads to strength, and that's how I grow in power. Power is not antithetical to weakness. Not a bit. He says, I wouldn't have anything like the courage I have. I wouldn't have anything like the power I have. I wouldn't have anything like the freedom I have from fear if God hadn't put this weakness in my life. If I'd gotten conceited, I'd be filled with fear. Don't you see? Pride, conceit, comes because our hearts will take any success, any good thing, and we'll, we'll use it as a way of self-justification. Anything, even experiences of God. Paul says, my heart would have taken that and said, I must be hot spit. <laughs> I've been to heaven. You know, actually, uh, he said, automatically, he just knows that that's what would have happened. And God sends a thorn. Now, somebody says, well, what's the thorn? Interestingly enough, we don't really know. And how wise and how wonderful of, of, of Paul not to tell us. You see, that we, we, we can identify with him. See, if he told us what the thorn is, we'd say, well, that's not me. But since he doesn't tell us what it is, everybody can read themselves in here. 
Uh, actually, if thorn in the flesh, see the word flesh, if he means a thorn in the body, if he means his physical flesh, then he may mean that he had a problem with, you know, people have you know, surmised that he had an eye problem, that he was going blind, that he had epilepsy, things like that. But if when he says thorn in the flesh, he means his spiritual flesh, that means his sin. In other words, that he had a goad to his sin. He might mean that he had a besetting sin. He was falling prey to temptation. He was tempted into bitterness or into anger, into lust or into something like that. We don't know. Isn't that nice? Because now we can read our thorn in. And what he says is, God gave me something. No, wait a minute. You say, didn't Satan give me something? Well, I get to that as my last point in here one second. But the point is, something came in that filled him with weakness. And he says, if it wasn't for that sense of weakness that came into my life, I wouldn't have any power. You see, it's the weakness that leads you to cry out to God. It's the weakness that shows you that the only reason why God loves you is not because of your righteousness, but because of Christ's righteousness. And that's the only thing that frees you to go out and say, gosh, the reason that God... You see, I remember the morning, I remember the morning when I looked at my life and God was still with me, He was still helping me, He was still supporting me in spite of the last two or three months in which I thought I'd let Him down again and again. And the thought came to me, oh my gosh, He must love me for Christ's sake. You know, that was one of those kind of minor revelations. And, and everybody who goes through a period of, exp- of weakness, at some point you'll say, oh my gosh, he must love me. Not because I'm perfect, because he's perfect. Not because I'm good, because he's good. And that just frees you. Experiences of weakness lead to power. In fact, Paul says, God will never let you go. You know the place in, the, uh, in, in Psalm 3 where it says he is a shield? This means that whenever God lets anything come into your life that hurts you, it's a pain that shows you your weakness, that makes you feel like giving up, he's shielding you from something worse. He's trying to show... You see, if he's a shield, that means even the worst thing that comes into your life, the, these bad things that come into your life, he's trying to shield you from something worse. He's always a shield. He's always protecting. Weakness and strength go together. Now, the only thing you have to see, though, one last thing, is that Paul doesn't say here that it happens automatically. Now, he doesn't give you the impression at all that... that Weakness automatically leads to strength. Rather, he tells you how he processed the thorn. It says, Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. Now, here's what happened. First of all, I don't have time to spell this out. Let me, just, let me, let me show you the trick. It's a trick. Not a trick. There's a technique. Look. First of all, he says, the thorn is a messenger from Satan. Now, that means that when a bad thing happens to you, Satan attaches a message to it. It's a little bit like email. You know, you can attach a document. You can attach a document to your email, right? You just attach it and it goes. All right. Satan attaches a message to the thorn. And the thing that discourages you is not the thorn, but the message with it. Satan wants you to get one message from the thorn, but there he's saying, when I prayed to God, I saw that God had another, had his own message with it. 
You have to look at a problem that comes into your life, and you have to say, there's a message from Satan in this, and there's a message from God, and my discouragement or my strengthening will depend on which message I listen to. Uh, let me give you an example that's fairly obvious, because especially, you know, I know this, since it's so, so many single people come to this church, this has happened to a number of you. This might be one of the reasons we are single. Listen, has anybody who you wanted to marry turned you down? Somebody you wanted to marry, and they, and they said, no, and they cut it off. That's a thorn. You feel weak. It buffets you. But here's what, here's what Paul's saying. Satan has a message with it. What's Satan's message? Well, there's a lot of things. See, your discouragement is not the result of the thorn. It's a result of listening to the message from Satan. Well, for example, one message that comes from Satan is, um, you're terrible. You're a failure. See, it's not the thorn, it's the message that's discouraging you. Or, here's another one. Uh, another message that comes with this thorn is, maybe the message that you're listening to is, you know, if, if it's a man who turned you down or a woman that turned you down, maybe the message says, you know, women are terrible. Men, you can't trust them. You know, and you get all down. I can't trust them. I hate them. It's not the thorn. It's the message. Paul says, though, with every thorn, there's a message from God. What is that message? He says, my grace is sufficient for you, and my power is made perfect in weakness. Now, that is the generic message. I have to say that that what Paul is saying is whatever particular thorn is coming into your life, there's a particular message from God. But whether you're discouraged or strengthened all depends on whether or not you're going to listen to Satan's message with it or God's. For example, God could be saying to you, it's my grace that saves you, not what the opposite sex thinks of you. My grace is sufficient for you. And until you understand that, you're not going to be, have power. As long as you take your identity and what the opposite sex thinks about you, you're going to be a person of weakness. So I sent you this weakness to make you strong. Don't you see? Don't you see? You see, Paul found that in prayer. My grace is sufficient for you. Now, I'm sorry to pick on you. If somebody here thinks, does he know that somebody just turned me down? No, I'm not. I just know that this has happened. It's just one example. It's pretty remarkable. And if you do that, and if you, if you listen to the message, and you see that the thorn that's there, Satan's got a purpose for it, and so does God, and depending on who you listen to will determine whose purposes is realized, are realized in your life. Jonathan Edwards, that other dead mentor I've got, has a great little, it's got a great little line I just read this week. He was talking about safety. And he says, Christians are safe, utterly safe. There's a place in Proverbs where it says, he who trusteth in the Lord is safe. And Jonathan Edwards says, the mistake that people make all the time is this. He says, the Bible does not prove, it does not, does not teach that Christians are safe from evil things. The Bible says that Christians are safe from the evil of all things. Evil things will not have an evil effect on you at all. If you understand the gospel and you apply it, if you know that you're saved by grace and you use it at that moment, you see, you are utterly safe, not from evil things, but from the evil of anything. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for giving us one more story 
of a man in Christ. And we pray that those of us tonight who are looking at our thorns and looking at our wounds might apply grace as we come to your table so that we can find that our weakness is really your, our strength and your power is made perfect through it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's teaching from Dr. Keller. We pray you were encouraged by it. To find more gospel-centered resources like today's teaching, you can sign up for email updates at gospelandlife.com. That's gospelandlife.com. This month's sermons were recorded in 1996 and 2009. The sermons and talks you hear on the Gospel and Life podcast were preached from 1989 to 2017, while Dr. Keller was senior pastor at Redeemer Presbyterian Church.